We're back! We're back! It's a distraction. I'm through. That's Roth. How you doing, Roth? I'm good, man. What's happening? It is today, uh, as of this recording, I have been married 20 years to my wife. It's my wow. 20th wedding anniversary. What's the, uh, you know how sometimes they do anniversaries where it's like, you know, your third anniversary is like... Yeah, the, the oh, felt it's Pippi and Mache and all that. No. So what, uh, what is 20? That sounds like that should be like a, a valuable medal. I am not going to do the thing where I start... It's too soon in the podcast for me to do the thing where I Google around in real time. I'm sure it's yeah, like right. ten <laughs> or something like that. We is, so you just have to I, give I only your bring wife it up. like like a katana. Give her like I, a really well crafted sword. I only bring it up because we 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 never do anything special for our wedding. So I was like, I said to my wife, I was like, well, why don't we go away? And she's like, well, you know, then we'd have to get my parents to visit or to stay with the kids or something like that. And I was, I was like, all right, all right, all right. Well, why don't we go out? For dinner, she's like, "Oh, oh, I know." She's like, "We can take a day trip to Annapolis and we go to Cantler's. It's one of the crab houses on the water where you, you mm-hmm. bash the crabs with the hammer and all that stuff." Yes, I was like, "Hey, that's fucking great. That's like a day. Like, oh, it's like sort of like a day trip and all that." And then she was like, "Oh, but I have work." And then I was like, "Oh, I have to record a podcast." And she's like, "All right, all right. Let's just go to let's just go out to lunch after you're done with the podcast." And I was like, "All right, that's fine." And so we were gonna set up. We were gonna go out to lunch. We were gonna go somewhere like different that we hadn't been before. And then my son gets home from school yesterday, and he's like, "My throat really hurts." And so my wife right now is taking him to the doctor for a culture for strep throat. So. So it's like the most typical, yeah. Like it's it is so emblematic of being married twenty it's years. One of those things where, like, if you read it in a short story, you'd be like, "That's a little on the nose." I think we got to take that back about twenty percent. It's got some O. Henry energy to it. Yeah, for, just the idea of like certain. you're starting with you being like, "I'm going to take you to fucking Portugal," and yep. then it ends with you guys having lunch at Bob Evans at two thirty with your child there, which yep. is like just not what you want at all. Uh, a thousand percent. But, you know, like, that's why I like being married. I like the typicality of it. Like, that's kind of the point. Like, yeah, everyone's like, oh, like, you know, like, like at the wedding, they're like, oh, you go, when you go home, it's just going to be, you know, you two together. It's not going to be like a big thing anymore. And that's the point. That's the fun of it. I like yeah. the ordinariness of 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 our existence together and We've also we keep that going because we don't have kids in a way that i think other people like what you're describing the idea of like the sudden introduction of strep throat into the equation is like just not going to be a problem for us like knockwood like that is you know we can do our going to restaurants thing like you know obviously there's some other stuff that we're not you know getting to necessarily enjoy as adults but there is like Something about, like, getting older, trying to find these, like, sort of narrow windows in which to do stuff. Like, I guess I sort of like it. If I was still complaining about it, I think I'd be a pretty unhappy guy. Like, you just have to kind of get used to it. Right. I mean, there's still a part of me that I think doesn't fully comprehend the fact that I haven't just been 25 years old for 16 years or whatever. Like, it, obviously, like, I know that that's not true, but it's like, because my life hasn't changed that, that much, there's still a part of me that's kind of like, well, what can't we go out? Like, what, you don't go out on Tuesdays anymore? And like, the answer is no, I fucking don't, you know, but we still are uh, working on getting our heads around that after like a decade and a half. Here are the thing uh, when you're married where like choose, choosing a restaurant kind of becomes like a small scale power struggle. Yeah. Or like, like who's, who's actually going to, who's going to win the restaurant choice we have also gotten this compulsive thing where we share stuff and so there's a lot of like like i do eat meat my wife does not i don't eat very often but i you know like when she's not around i'll cook it for myself that like used to be a thing that happened before we started spending all of our time in the same apartment uh for a few years and so we were going out a lot our anniversary fell while we were up in maine and you know we did like a dinner on our actual anniversary and then like the which was like a you know a Sunday so there weren't that or Monday there weren't that many places that were open we went again and then we went for a uh, sort of second or maybe third anniversary dinner on our last day in town so this was Look like at you yeah we were balling we were definitely although the last one was like it was an incredible meal but it was like in a strip mall in South Portland which was like this suburb that has because Portland has gotten so expensive that has like it used to be where Kate would go to like smoke cigs and bowl you know uh, when she was like and now it's like nice she's a bad girl yeah yeah it was literally the place that we went to it was really good it's called judy gibson i recommend it to anybody 
is like in the location of like a greasy spoon diner that she used to go to when she was in high school, but they've like retrofitted it and like got it all kitted out now so that it's like a fancy like chefy cooktop that you're like watching everybody do stuff on. And she was like, yeah, that used to be the place where um, like I watched a man cough into my eggs like when I was a child. <laughs> but yeah, I mean like that sort of we it's the sharing of the dishes that it's become an issue because there's stuff where she's like, you know, you can get that if you want. Like if you want duck, I want you to have duck. And I'll be like, no, 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 no. No, I'd rather I'd rather give you half of whatever it is I order. And that's that is just such like, a marriage weapon. Yeah. The the if that's what you want, like if that's what you want, go for it. When really, like what you're saying to them is, I don't want you to fucking get right. that. <laughs> like if you're really gonna choose fucking pancetta over me after 12 years of marriage, then I just don't know. <laughs> Which is you know like it's a tough one. I don't want to stay in this too long, but I, I will say that this has a happy ending where. Uh, like, when my wife gets back from the throat culture, we're still going out to lunch. Like, Good. the kid has strep. We've had kids with strep so many fucking times. It doesn't... It yeah, I was going to say, like, you can leave a child with strep throat alone for 90 minutes. Yeah, because he... Like, that's the only thing that's hurting him, and the only reason you keep him home is so he doesn't give other kids strep throat. Right. That's really it. Like, he's not, like, incapacitated. And even if he were... Like, like if he were bedridden, okay, we'd stay home. But he's, like... He's up and about. There's something more annoying when a kid who takes takes a sick day, but they they they're like able bodied and they yeah. can do and like you don't get to baby them and be like oh poor bit and like feed them like Mrs. Grass chicken soup and all that shit. <laughs> like they're not. He doesn't have to do anything. Like he's just gonna fucking stare at his iPad the whole time. So we're going to lunch. I bought her a baller gift. We're gonna have a good time. And Roth, I'm gonna segue into noting that it's milestone week here. Defector. Wow. And at the distraction. Because, uh, because, uh, oh, oh, Aaron Judge. Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah, there you go. Well done. Another milestone. As I was a little worried you weren't going to land that one, but I was like, I think he's onto something. Let's see where he goes. As of this recording, Yankees slugger, and what a great word, slugger remains. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aaron Judge, he has 60 home runs on the season. And, um, you know, I, I was like a lot of people where I thought the regular season was ending soon, but I forgot about the lockout causing it to be a bit longer. So he's got, Plenty of room, plenty of games left to beat Roger Maris' 61. And I don't want to get into the true home run king debate because there's no way that debate's going to end cleanly anymore. Right. Plus, also, like, the New York Post is going to do so much of that work for us. Yes. It's going to be... That's just their a, job. Yeah. It's like, there's going to be headlines just like, he was a judge, now he's king. Fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be fucking so obnoxious and annoying. And it's going to be great. So I, I did want to ask you... Isn't it kind of fun on a certain level to make this shit a big deal again? Like, it kind of feels like old times. Like, I like this 90s energy yeah. to him we doing had, this. We had a, a good post on Defector the morning that we're recording this by Barry Petreski that noted in passing how cool the 98 home run chase was. It was fucking awesome. It ruled. And I think it's the sort of thing that's been kind of like, you know, written out of history because in retrospect, it's a little embarrassing that it's like these two steroid guys who just had this, like, incredible, like, not even just bodily depth. They were just very wide men. Like, they were just, you know, like, a good, solid, like, three, four feet across at the shoulders. Like, they were very obviously on that gear. And yet, like, watching them go homer for homer every day was, like, I think legitimately it got me back into baseball after I had sort of, like, I mean, I was in college. It was different. Like, I, you know, I wasn't following it as closely, but... It was really cool. Like, all, it was probably the last time that I got the sense that all of America cared about baseball every day. Yeah, or I not mean, it was all really of it, but, you know, a good percentage did. I mean, it took you back to the time where ESPN would um, would preempt programming to cut to that. Or, like, remember when Ken Griffey hit, I think it was, like, seven or eight games in a row where he had a home run Mm -hmm. and they would preempt programming to show you that. Yeah. And that was fucking badass. Yeah. I enjoyed all of that. It makes it feel special. And I think it makes it like, it sort of has this, uh, like it affirms itself when you do that, that like if you're giving people those sorts of live look-ins and like, you're telling them that this is meaningful, then eventually they're going to start to understand it as such. I think that's one of those deals where, like, maybe, again, this is just you and me talking about stuff that seemed cool to us when we were, like, 20 or, you know, 18 or whatever. I do think that that's 
a way that you could get people sort of geeked up about this stuff is just like by treating it as if it's meaningful. And well, watching you know an Aaron Judge at bat is cool on its merits. If he hits a double, yeah. it's cool. You know, he like, is. he's he's an entertaining baseball player. And what I want to say is, like, I think it. First of all, I don't think it's just us being old farts, and I don't think that. Um, I also don't think that like there is a lack of attention to this right now that is symptomatic of, you know, our standard, you know, what's wrong with baseball sort of right. conversation. Like I think that people are paying attention to yeah. it. And I think that's really fucking cool. Because like imagine if they imagine if that team gets to the World Series and you know, fuck the Yankees, blah 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 blah. But you know, they go they go to the World Series, they play the fucking Dodgers, and it's just two fucking Titanic teams, and like Judge has like three home runs in that series or something. Fuck off. Everybody's going to watch that. Yeah. It's going to be I mean, fucking I think amazing. Like, I think that's what... We talked about this with uh, with Ben Mathis Lilly when he was on talking about college football. I think that, yes. like, it's not a bad thing necessarily that the the general bias on the part of sports fans is towards monster fights in big right. sports events. Like, that's what you're supposed to want. Like, it's yeah. cool to have, like, an upstart team go into the Super Bowl or whatever. Like, I enjoyed the Bengals in the Super Bowl last year. That was neat. But, like... You should want to see, like, the two, not just the two best, but, like, the two, like, biggest, silliest, goofiest teams in every sport in that. And, like, the Yankees, obnoxious though they may be, like, Yankees-Dodgers, I would be fine with that. Like, I I don't know that it's exactly the one I want. I have, you know, uh, longtime listeners will know that I have a rooting interest in the postseason this year. Right. But I also feel like, yeah, like, who the fuck turns that down? Right, like, because like the little scrappy team is gonna be a dickhead team anyway. The fucking Braves were a dickhead team last mm-hmm. year. The Astros were like major dickheads. So yeah. I'm not like there's no Cinderella here. There's no fucking UVM of yeah. the of the field that's gonna be like totally endearing because they beat the the big bad Yankees. Ooh, I don't give a fuck. This is fuck. you're erasing Sorrentine from the parking lot, but I'm gonna allow it. I'm gonna allow it in this case. Uh, while we're on baseball, I want to ask you about your Mets because I believe they lost the division lead to uh, to the Braves, who I still hate as a Laps Twins fan, and not 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 just for for last year. I hate him for last year too, but uh, but now they have reclaimed the division lead again as of this recording. Yeah, they lost what it did, for all of twenty four hours. Okay, so. what is the state of your Mets then at this moment? Would they match up well with the Dodgers in the playoffs? Do they have a shot? They have, I think, as good a shot as anyone. And, like, obviously, whatever disclaimers about me being psychotic, like, everybody that's listening to this already knows uh, what my issues with the Mets are. I mean, you're you're always so fired up every podcast about the Mets. You're screaming about it in, like, a very thick Bronx accent. Right. Like, I'm basically, I turn into, it's really terrible to watch in a Zoom window, but I physically turn into Mad Dog Russo. And I'm like, you're not giving them enough credit. You got to give them more credit. (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's easy. You just turn the speed of your voice up by about 16 uh, and, <laughs> uh, like a hundred RPM voice, yep, just, yeah. Alvin in the chipmunks mode yeah. yourself, and there you Christmas, are. Christmas, Christmas time. Okay, too early. The, for that. I think they are as equipped just because of the fact that, like, if everything is going right, they're going to have Max Scherzer and Jacob Degrom starting multiple games in a postseason series. Scherzer uh, came back from like basically a rest-related stint on the IL and threw six perfect innings earlier this week. DeGrom has looked, like, more mortal than usual while still looking like the best pitcher that anyone has ever seen. Like, he's just, like, every now and then he'll give up some runs. It's not, like, the stretch that he had at the start of uh, 2021 where he was basically unhittable and untouched for months. The issue with a lot of, you know, with any team, I think, that is, like, trying to play the Dodgers is that the Dodgers just don't really have weak spots like anywhere on right, the team. Right. And you know, the Mets are and Steve Cohen, the owner, has said that like the goal is to basically be the East Coast version of the Dodgers, to do like all of the stuff that the Dodgers do right, roughly as well as the Dodgers do it, which is like that's a nice goal, but it's like me saying that like, you know, my goal for the next year is to uh like have George Clooney's career. Right. You know, and like just well, jump also in there. doesn't isn't it doesn't it I mean, if you want to be the Dodgers of the East Coast, doesn't that just really mean you got to have a payroll of $300 million? So like it they do? means that in part, but this is the thing with the Dodgers that's that's different. And I think that, you know, if you, I don't want to call any of it admirable because fundamentally we're talking about executive, you know, decisions and behavior. And that's it's not, all right. You can, you can, but call it the Dodgers do spend a lot. 
um, they don't spend crazy, crazy high. Like they're not, you know, $100 million over the luxury tax. But they also, and this is the part of it that I think seems replicable, but is actually much harder than it looks. They also do an amazing job of identifying like basically free talent, like pulling couches off the curb that turn out to be, you know, incredibly valuable pieces. They did it with, you know, all over their infield, all the, the back of their rotation, their bullpen is all that. And they develop players exceptionally well. And so there's this thing that, you know, the part that the Mets have done, and this has like helped them sort of jump from being like a legit bad team last year to a good team this year is like, you can do some of that with spending and you can do it pretty quickly. If you spend that money on Max Scherzer and he pitches like Max Scherzer and you make four moves in the offseason and three of them hit really big, which the Mets have done, that you can get there quick. You can improve quickly. You just have to keep spending at that level if you're not doing all the other shit that the Dodgers do so well. But what they're able to do is because they're developing all these players and they have this incredible pipeline of talent, they have more prospects than they can use so they can trade them for Mookie Betts or Trey Turner when they need to and, and not really be impacted by it. And then there's this other thing, which is like the most magical bit. And I think, you know, every team would be doing it if, if it were as easy as the Dodgers make it look. But they're able to figure out ways to help existing major league talent improve. Like the idea of like turning Tyler Anderson into or Tony Gonsolin into a guy who, you know, is among the 10 best starting pitchers in the sport is fucking crazy. Like, Gonsolin was a mid-round pick, like, low bonus. Like, not a guy that would necessarily even have a ticket to the majors. Tyler Anderson was, like, just one of a bunch of, like, fourth and fifth starter type guys. And they just, they help guys get better. And if you can do that with the guys that you're not paying a lot of money, then you're able to, like, sort of build in that sort of seamless depth that the Dodgers have. And it's, again, you know, one of those things that when you watch them do it, you're like, oh, why don't we, you know, just do that? with whatever, like, bummy fifth starter we pay $3 million next year. But, like, it's not like that. That's not how it works. Like, they've really got it figured out at every level. Well, is it that they figured it out, or is it more that the winning is the the horse that leads all carts where, Mm -hmm. you know, because I've seen good teams. I just saw the Warriors turn Andrew Wiggins into an all-star. Like, and so, so it seems to me a lot of times that goodness simply... He gets goodness because you get a guy, you bring a guy in who is like a, a middling talent or has had middling achievements in his career. He's surrounded by better players, which automatically takes the pressure off of him or her. And then also, um, you know, you're more confident when you're on a team that, you know, that is going to win 100 games a year naturally. And so I don't know whether or not, you know, it's the chicken or the egg. I don't know which one is leading which there necessarily. But you seem to be convinced that the, the Dodgers really – in, in addition to simply reaping the natural uh, organic benefits of winning, also know how to do things correctly in terms of how they process everything. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you make, though. Because there is this, uh, there's a story at Baseball Prospectus that Jared Seidler wrote the other day that I thought was interesting about, so basically there's two big catching prospects that have come out of Louisville. One of them backed up the other one for a couple of years. Henry Davis. Oh, wow. Did they yeah. both play for Nick Saban? <laughs> right. They, uh, yeah, they were all rec- recruited by Bobby Petrino. So it was during the Petrino years. Uh, the So Henry Davis was the first pick of the draft a couple years ago by the Pirates. Done pretty well. He had some bad luck with injuries this year. Uh, but, you know, it's like sort of hitting that like hype wall that prospects get despite having been the first pick of the draft. And then there's this guy, Dalton Rushing, which is an incredible baseball player. Oh, wow. Who is his backup, but is like, I believe is in the Dodgers system. And the point that Jarrett made in the story is that like, the reason that Rushing is going to be like passing Davis on a lot of project uh, prospect lists is not necessarily because of like a tools related thing or whatever. It's just that like, if you spend two years in the Dodgers system versus two years in the Pirates system you get not just like necessarily better instruction or they know how to like help guys hit the ball in the air or any of the things you want prospects to do, that there is also all of that other stuff that you pointed out. And I think that that means something that like you get a sense that you're a part of a big league pipeline that is going to help you improve, that's going to treat you right, that's going to make sure that you're like put in situations to succeed at every turn. And that is like, 
organizational, like, winning is different than, like, sort of on the field stuff. I think it's harder. You do tend to sort of go back after the fact and be like, wow, they must be really good at this because this happened. And yet, like, it means a lot. Like, I think when you see teams that get it right, and this is, again, where, like, it's sort of, it helps that the Dodgers have basically averaged 100 wins a year for a decade. Like, <laughs> right. That obviously, like, that does a lot for you. But it is also the sort of thing where it does, I think, like, build in institutionally just a belief that things are going to work. And yeah, for a I sport that's, that's a- got all that mental aspect, I think that means a lot. Yeah, I think it means a lot in other sports too. And just like in business in general, where if you're working for people and you believe they know what the fuck they're doing, that like matters a lot. Like yep. that, okay, all right. I, I, I know these people clearly know what they're doing. I'm going to listen to them because it's going to be a good idea to do that, and then I'm going to prosper, and then you do, and that's always very yeah. cool. Yeah, I don't want to make it about too much about Defector, but the, the right, other milestone... I know. That, it's, it is the story of Defector. But I think we're both nutshell. sort of talking about the same thing, that, like, this is... For me, like, in my working life, like, all the different places I've worked, I think I've had every sort of shitty media ownership experience that you can have. Right. You know, that it was, like, I, like venture back stuff, like, private equity guys that don't give a shit about what they're doing... Whatever it was that Vice was trying to do, it was basically like a pump and dump thing where you were trying to like sell the entire network to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia before they realized what it was actually worth. Damn, that's fucking wild, man. That's, that's wild. That's wild. It's incredibly wild. <laughs> I yeah, smoked cot with the <laughs> MBS. Uh, but I think that like with all of that, like you feel this sense, regardless of the work that you're doing, because like you're going to try to do a good job no matter what, where it is that you're doing it. Right. But at some point, you know that the people that are in charge of your fate and ultimately that are going to decide to either pay you or not pay you are either cretins or incompetent or just don't care about what you're doing one way or another. And as soon as they get bored, they're going to pivot to some other shit. And that is like, you can still do good work under those circumstances. I think you and I have both like written stuff that we're proud of while going through this incredible like ownership chaos. But no, I, I wrote nothing good at Deadspin. All no, my nothing. Well, just, yes, but you've done good work. Terrible. I'm Abominable. talking about SF Gate uh, <laughs> mostly. <laughs> but I think that, like in all of that, you're not yourself. You're not your best self anyway, because you know, in you know, you have this feeling that you sort of carry around with you every day. That for me, I've mostly noticed in its absence at Defector. Like I've noticed how much space that was taking up, where mm-hmm. you're just kind of like aware that the clock is ticking and that sort of what you do doesn't matter. Oh, right. You all have the idea. You all have the feeling that the work you're doing um, is. It, God, this is such a bad. I know, dude. It's so hard to talk about this in words. For a good cause, but that makes it sound like you're you're doing your work to cure cancer or something like that. But like, right. like that your work will will pay off. Uh, you know, not just monetarily for you, but you know, in in advancement, in notice, it'll be promoted and supported the way you know. Like your work will have a will will have. There'll be a purpose to it, and right. that's that's important. Uh, before we take a break, I did want to ask you because we never got to this, um, but Major League Baseball has instituted their rule changes for 2023 next season. So bigger bases—they're not that much bigger—a pitch clock and a shift ban. Now I don't want to talk about whether or not we like these changes because we've done that before. Right. But I did want to ask you. Um, and God, maybe I've asked you this already, but do you see those changes having a competitive effect on the standings? Like, would teams account for that in free agency? Will, like, a pitcher who, like, is really fucking slow on the mound and takes forever, will he get a worse free agency deal this offseason if they know that he has to change his style to accommodate a pitch clock and he might, it might fuck him up? That's a good question. That's definitely way easier for me to sort of like speculate on than the idea of like if you ban the shift which teams would get better or worse like that's you got to read people that are smarter than me for that but the bit with the pitch clock is interesting because most and this is something that I think is actually it suggests to me that it's going to work that it's going to make games shorter uh and and sort of just run a little bit tighter that in the minors where they do have a pitch clock that most of the pitchers that come up from the minors and have in the last few years really just work faster. They get used to it. And most pitchers don't mind that. The guys that take a long time are these like max effort, often like one inning reliever types. So like a Roldis Chapman. Yeah, or it was Devin the Will- name that came right to my head. And honestly, like 
first of all, like for a number of reasons, if this means that we can no longer enjoy the Aroldis Chapman experience, <laughs> you know, like there's he's such it, a good guy. It's right. A shame. <laughs> say, I just love watching him. I love when he gives up a homer and makes the Jerry Seinfeld face right afterwards. I actually really do like it when he does that. But the idea that, like, you don't necessarily need to bend the game out of shape to accommodate a guy that takes 50 seconds between pitches. Like, there are, you know, ways in which, like, this could impact other sort of younger, more interesting versions of that pitcher. But that is not the normal type of pitcher. That is a a type that exists in most bullpens. But it's not even the only type that exists in most bullpens. And so I think that that, if those guys can't adapt and teams wind up getting sort of penalized for it, then, like, eventually they will figure it out. But the rest of it, I just feel like because it's worked in the minors to the extent that it has, like, we're already on track for that. And I think, you know, most of what I've seen, that was a quote from Max Scherzer that I saw, you know, attributed, like, later, but that he had apparently said in spring training Someone asked him about the pitch clock, and he was like, I haven't really thought about it, but I'll tell you this much. I'm going to manipulate the fuck out of it. Oh, yeah. And it was like, and you know what? Like, that's the mindset that you want. Yeah. He's going to. He's going to do whatever he can. Like, and that's fine. Like, that's what baseball is. That's what all of these guys do. And, like, as long as they are able to stay within it and, you know, like, get me on the train 20 minutes earlier uh, when I go to a game, like, that seems like a win for everybody to me. All right, well, let's, uh, let's take a break. Roth will get some water. We'll be right back. And we're back, and I have an update, Roth. My son does not have strep throat. Hey, congrats. Wow, this is so he stayed home for nothing, this little fucker. That's <laughs> great. Now he gets to, like, watch a movie on a nice sunny day instead of being in school. You know what? I have to watch... I have to watch the first three episodes of Andor for SF Gate, and I invited him to join me, and he was like, yeah, sure. So that's... I'm going to work by watching a shitty Star Wars movie, uh, <laughs> TV show and then go from there. Uh, let's get back to sports. Uh, Broncos coach Nathaniel Hackett. Who I wish <laughs> oh, oh I love his work. He appears How's he doing a, anyway? I haven't really followed it very close. Well, that's funny, Roth, because he appears to be a true moron. Uh, <laughs> and what's interesting is that, so everyone knows about him settling for a 64-yard field goal the first game of the season on, on Monday night, which was just astonishing to me. Yeah. On fourth and five, he had Russell Wilson. And then uh, just, the week, uh, just the week after that, uh, he called a timeout. Uh, uh, I, I, there, he, he had so many fuck-ups. One of them was like he had an option pitch on like third down and one, and the, the option pitch was like 10 yards into the backfield. And then every time he took a, a timeout uh, to figure out a fourth down play, and then he elected to punt instead. And so... All of this makes it clear to me, at least I think now, I think that head coaching is like a talent. Um, and that sounds like a fairly obvious observation, but I, I'm so used to head coaches being portrayed as grinders for so long that like the best coaches are the ones that study the most tape and sleep the least and right. hate their families the most. And it just seems to me now that uh, particularly in light of the Washington Post's uh, investigation that they published today into the obscene uh, lack of uh, diversity among coaching staffs in the NFL, which we knew before, but they did really in-depth research on. And they got people talking like Maurice Carthon and Lovey Smith and, and Tony Dungy and guys like that. Um, I think the teams, um, when they're hiring a guy who has never been a head coach before, they either... Don't look for that talent uh, before when they hire him, or they simply can't know what it is until they see him as a head coach fucking up the way Nathaniel Hackett has. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think it's funny to see how little understood it is, even at this point, that it is. Yeah. Because, like, we're pretty far along in the whole, like, modern football thing. You know, that, like, I remember as, you know, as a kid when, like, Coaches either looked like Wayne Fonts or Mike Holmgren. Those were like the two types of guys. So it's yes. like the same body type. They basically, you're choosing a mustache or no mustache. Yes. At this point, it's like we've got, you know, younger coaches, people with different philosophies. They're all still white, as the Washington Post article pointed out, which is sure fucked are. up and shameful. But there is also like, there's still enough organizations that are run by knuckleheads not just owned, but like, you know, sort of like institutionally, the front office is full of them, where 
you know, they're not just like hiring Joe Judge. They're like impressed with Joe Judge. Yeah. yeah. You know, that they're just like, they think we he's were like blown a away. Yeah. And that is like, so that really, you can hang some of that on owners being the sort of thing where it's like the idea of like Mr. Burns going to a baseball game and being like pretzeled bread, you know, like just like <laughs> having no idea what people are like. But there's still this element of like with the Broncos, which is like famously as buttheaded an organization as the NFL has. And drunk. Don't forget and drunk. drunk. All the like, and which is the one thing you can say for Nathaniel Hackett. No one's ever accused him of like being a DUI guy. He like sure looks like a there. drunk, though. He, he looks like well. he's been drinking since birth. He has he's got the the thing and I sort of have it too where your whole body just becomes your neck and I don't know if that's just that he needs to groom himself differently or if it's got some other medical element Sam or uh, Sam or calls him a Jim Norton looking motherfucker he and is that's a Jim Norton looking motherfucker that is how I am going to think of him for the rest of my life but what's funny with him and I think we talked about this with Pablo Torre last week that the way that he's fucking up feels new that like it took a little while to reveal that like Joe Judge really, I mean, instantly the team was not good, but the team wasn't going to be good anyway. They had idiots making the decisions. Well, also, he was just a dick. He was So it was dick. like, oh, that guy's a dick. Like, nobody's going to like playing for him. So that was sort of the, the initial flaw with Judge. Yeah. With Hackett, the idea was that, I guess, first and foremost, that he was supposed to be Aaron Rodgers bait, right? Yeah, like he was an Aaron Rodgers whisperer, even though he was only his OC for like two or three years. Like, right. But there wasn't a sense there, and this has been the part that he's, like, routinely screwed up, is that, like, the game just seems to be moving way, way too fast for him. Like, in it's, you know, taking these timeouts to be like, uh, do we have a punt returner and stuff? It's like, dude, you have to do better than that. Yeah, I mean, the idea that in 2022 there are head coaches making mistakes that just, like, a random fan would not yes. make. <laughs> yeah. Like, a literal fan, like, just comes down and is like, okay, we'll take a timeout. Like, just absolutely the most basic shit. That blows my mind because these coaching staffs are larger than they've ever been. And yep. for good reason. They're not like – it's not like gilding the lily. Like they – like like a, a lot of times during the regular season, all the backups have nothing to do. Like they'll play scout team, but they'll have nothing to do. And there are, there are co head coaches now who are like, well, wait a second. These guys should have instruction during the regular season. So let's have a coaching staff that's not, you know, 10 surly guys. Let's have a dozen people who are smart and let's have a game – uh, a game management coordinator, tell me when to take timeouts and all of that shit. So we have all of those resources and all of that knowledge, plus plus the research, obviously. And, it, and then you have guys like Nathaniel Hackett who just uh, seem to have been busted in from fucking 1980. It doesn't make right. any sense to me. That's the, And so that's the bit that I haven't read the entire post thing yet, but the, we were talking about this before we started recording that like the idea of like Mike Lombardi calling Maurice Carthon on the phone and being like, you don't have a kid, like you're not going to get this job. There's a part of it where it's like the mediocrity of the man on one end of the line, which is, I'm not talking about Maurice Carthon, that like those guys having not just like the, the last say in how all of this stuff goes, but that like over the span of generations being like, just these kind of like butthead, clubby, incurious dudes who insist on seeing football as like this like mythic manifestation of masculine virtues instead of like a problem to solve or whatever. Like you get that generationally that adds up like the people that they hire stick around. The bad ideas that they have are stubborn and they get stuck in weird places. And then you wind up with like not to say that like Nathaniel Hackett is necessarily you know, he's just the thing that comes out the butt end of the process that has been firing those dumb inputs down its throat for generations. So you have a guy who, like, isn't qualified, doesn't necessarily seem to know what a coach has on their plate, even for a game. And they brought him in basically, it seems like, because they were trying to attract a quarterback that they thought had similar, like, sort of mythic qualities. And then, and they, you know, whatever... They gave him another quarterback, and he wasn't fucking trusting him. He doesn't know how to use him. Yeah, and Aaron Rodgers, by the way, Aaron Rodgers is his own offensive coordinator and has yeah. been for like a, for fucking 15 years. So, like, don't even get me like, oh, well, this guy this guy was the, was the mind behind Aaron Rodgers. Get the fuck out of here with that. Like, there's right. no way. And so from the post thing, uh, there were two things. One was they, they posted a video, and Lovey Smith said something interesting where it was, okay, Every coach is referred to as a guru or a quarterback whisperer or a genius. It's always a white dude, right? Yeah. And then LaDainian Tomlinson, in the article itself, 
said something that I thought was sort of the heart of it. He said, I really think there's a disconnect between the owners and the kind of culture that is black folks, not understanding the way black folks communicate, the mannerisms, the expressions. It's different than someone who looks like them. We hear owners say all the time, oh, I connected with this candidate because they remind me of myself. We can't get past that mindset. We don't talk with coaches who don't look like you or talk like you or come from the same background. They'll never get a chance. And I think that that is not just applicable to the NFL, but that's yeah. been like the story of like the past few decades of like my existence as a person. Like, like just like, like I remember like, you know, in the 80s, like, like or, or like people making fun of, of black players for having names like Hingle McCringleberry. Like there's the Key and Peel sketch and stuff like that, right? And not really understanding, hey, this is a different culture. This is done differently. It's not done wrong because it's different. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. I think that, and I think that's a good, it's very well said by, by Tomlinson, but I think that like the point that you sort of make in expanding that out across the culture, like I've been trying to figure out a way to write about it or even just a way to think about it that'll kind of like let me rest. But I think that, I think that's the animating factor in our politics too, to a certain extent as a country that like there is, it's all driven by, uh, you know, disgust that basically like certainly reactionary politics are, you know, the idea is that you're just trying to get people into that headspace that you feel when you're like looking out the window of a car at other people on the sidewalk and being like, "Ugh, I wouldn't do it like that. You know, and that's like the animating, the idea that basically like other people are different from you and a threat in their difference is like, you can leverage all kinds of, you know, none of them will be good, but you can leverage a lot of political advantage on that. Yeah. You just have to, what it depends upon, though, like fundamentally is not just being ungenerous, but being incurious. Like the idea of like, if you are willing to accept that Joe Judge, because he reminds you of you, is the <laughs> best person that you know, that if you think that that qualifies him to be the coach, then you're not fucking looking hard enough. You're not working on the problem enough. Because the, the idea there is find somebody that can meet these players where they are and get the best out of them. And instead, I think when people just sort of turn it back towards themselves, anywhere that this happens in the culture, you wind up someplace too dumb to succeed from. Yeah, because it's, it's not only a, a manifestation of, of hatred and bigotry that we're all very familiar with, but also um, an awkwardness and a discomfort and yep. a laziness where, you know, when people cry out about cancel culture, like it's bullshit, right? It's just a stupid fucking complaint. But what they're really saying is that you know, the world is changing in a way that I am unfamiliar with, mm -hmm. and I don't, I'm not all that interested in it, and I don't really know what this is about, and it makes me uncomfortable that the world is changing. Like, everyone is fucking unfrozen caveman lawyer all of a right. sudden when they complain about this shit. And that is like, so there's the, there's the top line ugliness of it, but then there's also just this weird sort of personal discomfort and sort of squeamishness that doesn't really. You know, I don't want to do the Simmons thing. But why isn't anybody talking about this? Like, I, it's just that is also there, yeah. and it is it is also a factor. Even when you are someone who says, "Oh, open racism is really bad," you're practicing the this. You know, we, we you know we know that it's called unconscious bias, or you know, or and, and it goes by those other terms. But it also has has to deal with people just not understanding that it's okay. And it's not that hard to change with the times is the time right. to change. Or just that's accepting it. that some people are going to be different than you. That, like, yeah. not everybody has to, like, that's the part of it. This is, like, the car window part that I've been trying to, like, figure out how to fucking write it. Because it's, like, everywhere, I mean, what we're describing basically are, like, Bill Maher's politics. You know, right. that, like, somebody who, oh. like, who, like, thinks they're liberal and, like, maybe is in, like, sort of this, like, surface way where they don't want to, like not be able to smoke pot legally, you know, but it is all like what it comes down to is like the second that they are inconvenienced or have to like think for a second before they say something that they're like, I'm being victimized now. Like this is actually one of the worst to paraphrase Kyrie on uh, vaccine requirements at work that it's like, this is one of the worst human rights abuses that has ever happened. Fucking but Bill like, Maher. Every time Bill Maher is trending, like you can hear my groan from fucking Saturn. Ugh, it's just like like the absolute least liberal liberal asshole that ever existed. Right. Like, I but think I mean, he I think is that the most annoying person. To there's be something here. instructive about that though, because it's the sort of thing where like he 
is a liberal like that's like his I guess his default setting because he like works in showbiz and that's what he's around and stuff and yet like there's nothing under it there's not that's not driven by values it's it's habit yeah he's just that, a like, guy who smokes weed and hangs out at the Playboy Mansion in right. 2022 like, yeah. yeah so like basically like uh, he means that like in all of that that he should you know be able to sort of do what he wants like. And that's fine, given the things that he wants are the things that make him liberal. The urge to do what you want and that that is the most important thing and the whole of the law. Like, you're a libertarian, actually, if that yeah, is what you think. Yeah, I think he's <laughs> you know? just like, he, he's the guy who's like, I'm such an edgy liberal, I'm actually a Republican. Like, that's like him. And then, yeah, like, and then it goes over to guys like Dave Chappelle. Like, you know, like I tried watching some Dave Chappelle with, with my, my son, because he loves stand-up. And right away, you know, like, and this is actually not necessarily... Um, Common Justice Chappelle, but it's like every comic now, the guy have a fucking five minute bit in there. With with Chappelle, it's half the goddamn special. But right. like, will ever come? There's always the a five minute bit about what I can and can't say. And you know what? Just fucking say the shit and just right. get on with it. All right. It's not beyond the fact that it's like those aren't good jokes. It's like we all know, dude. It's not like at the start of a Broadway show, someone comes out and is like, "I'm Nathan Lane. Yeah. I'm a real guy." But soon you'll be seeing me in Guys and Dolls. It's like I fucking get it, dude. Like you're, I know, I know. Also, that you're this hedging is too. Like you're just hedging so that you can drop the other f bomb, you know. And like, and Chappelle right. drops him in one of the specials, and I was like, like this is on, too man. fucking dated. Like, yeah. Like back in the day, like like it was funny. Like Eddie Murphy would come out and be like, "If you're old and you don't like swear swear words, get the fuck out of here." And then he would say a whole bunch of really horrible shit. Like after that, but like now it's like like well, if you're young. And you like diversity? Well, you're in big trouble because I'm just so edgy. You're right. gonna, you're just gonna, you're gonna clutch your pearls. It's gonna be so. It's bad. such a crazy thing too, because it's like it's so much easier to come out and be like, and just to to abuse people, to be like defiant, as opposed to being like, just before we get started here, like if you get mad at me, that's it's <laughs> not, not your liable. fault. Like first, that would make me a victim, and that would be very sad for me. So like, please, like, oh god, fuck yeah, out of here. Why, why don't you hand out a fucking waiver before the show? <laughs> uh, let's get to the guy of the week because we've yeah. we've uh, we I can't believe we managed to dovetail into the state of comedy. That was actually kind of enjoyable. I like that. Uh, <laughs> our, I have two guys of the week for you, David. Roth, oh, because wow. I found so I'm gonna give you uh, I'm give you a background here. Someone emailed me about uh, fantasy football. And they said that the Rams running back backs were Cam Akers, which is correct, and Devery Henderson. And I saw the word, I saw the name Devery, <laughs> Devery Henderson. Henderson. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, that's not that guy's name. Devery Henderson was a guy. It's Daryl Henderson. He's the Rams running back. Yes. But then I thought about Devery Henderson, and I was like, fuck, that is a good guy pull. And then I was like, wait a second, Saints wide receivers are. All fantastic guys. So of course yep. you have Marcus Colson, but then the other one I wanted for this week was Robert Meacham. Remember him? Yes, very fondly. I so I have a special connection with the Saints. Um also I love Joe Horn. He was like a bo- oh, Horn is yeah. pretty much a dude. Yeah, a yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean Joe Horn was a special player. But so my friend uh Mike, when I first moved to the city, like all my my friends from college or a lot of them were here, and that was like my initial circle of friends. I didn't really know anybody else and my friend Mike is from New Orleans and had NFL season ticket, and he was so, and therefore was like the closest thing to a functioning adult that I that I knew, you know, that was friends. So I was like, this guy's got direct TV, so you know he's going places, right? And we would go there on Sundays and watch NFL games, and like basically the price that you paid for being able to watch any NFL game when that was still like really novel and not even like in that many bars was that you had to watch the Saints. And so, like, every Sunday I would go there and just watch Aaron Brooks throw the ball straight up in the air. (laughs) (laughs) And it was, you know, I treasure those memories. Like, it was, basically all of us grew up. Like, that was basically the, Mike learning to cook was, like, a big moment. Because he used to just make this chili that was, like, too hot to eat. And everybody would just be like, oh, thank you so much for all this beef. But, like, he got, like, a Cooks Illustrated subscription, changed his life. 
I was able to realize that I didn't need to drink malt liquor. I could just drink beer, and then I would feel oh, wow. better. Yeah, that was wow. a big moment. I was like 24, so, 25. Sounds pretty happened. soft of you, man. You it was. Cool, I gave man. I, I was. I, at some point, I just realized I couldn't run with the Schlitz Blue Bull anymore. I bet you put hose before bros, too. It, it was embarrassing. Yeah, you, and honestly, like I think at this point, I look back on it. That's the thing I would change the most. <laughs> but watching all of those guys, the Saints would like draft... It was like the kind of the old Raiders approach. It was just like track athletes, basically. Yeah, there were there were guys who were like, it was guys like Devery Henderson who would, like two times a year, they'd have a game where they catch four passes for like 102 yards, and you were right. like, that's it. He has fucking made his mark. He's ready to take off. And then you wouldn't hear from him for like another month. Right. And so the, it, what was funny was the guys that were, they're, they're really good players who were like Colston after Horn, but also a little bit together, were like, kind of unheralded like possession receivery type guys and then like all the fast guys that they draft were basically not fantasy ownable you know like Dante Stallworth I guess probably got to a thousand yards Meacham and Devery Henderson for sure did not uh and yet, no I, I don't think so uh but they were great like fucking go pattern dudes and like so they would do cool stuff and you know I'd get to see it and it would make my friend Mike happy for a little while until Aaron Brooks fucked up and that was like you know so I have a special spot in my heart for those guys uh, Meacham, uh, never had more than 722 yards receiving. And then Devry, and I am doing the, the I, that's actually, fine. We're I'm in not, like minute 45 of the podcast now where it's allowed. And then Devry also didn't, he never had more than 804 yards receiving, yep. but God, the list is so like, they're got, like Marcus Colson is the, the number one. Uh, the leading receiver in Saints history. Behind him is Eric Martin. Now, that's a great guy. Yeah. And then we got Lance Moore at number eight and Quinn Early at number 10. Just Quinn a, Early? Yeah, so many that's, fucking fantastic I don't, guys. He's like, I don't think I associate Quinn Early with the Saints at all. He was like a, he was a, a Chargers guy? Great I, name. I think he was a Ram or a Falcon for a while. And speaking of Falcons, Michael Haynes is on here. Yeah. Pierre Thomas, who was fucking great. He's a running back. Yeah. He Well, he's their 17th leading receiver as a running back because he's a great, he was a great pass catcher out of the backfield. All right. We have done enough guy stuff. Yeah. It's time say. for the fun bag. This is from Brian. The Saints minute is over. Yeah. Brian writes in, I had a dentist appointment today and I haven't showered. I will obviously brush my teeth, shave, and put on deodorant. But do I really need to shower before going to the dentist? And what about the doctor? Am I a disgusting person? Should Brian shower before he attends the dentist? Roth. I don't feel good about having to answer this question. This is the same sort of vibe as the person that wrote in and was like, if you found a, a beautiful sandwich sitting on a urinal, would you eat it? Because like, I have to speak my truth here, and yet it's going to make me seem gross. So my answer is... You don't have to shower to go see the dentist. You do have to shower to go see the doctor. Like, if you're getting a physical and they're going to ask you to, like, take your clothes off. <laughs> if they're going to stick their finger in your, your dirty Right. Asshole. I was like, anything where there's, like, someone's <laughs> going to be messing around with your, your area, that's just professional courtesy. Like, if they're, <laughs> like, you should. But that's probably not going to happen at the dentist unless things go really wrong. And so you should just feel free to, you know, don't be too fragrant. But yeah, you don't need to, you just trust your stuff, trust your judgment. Uh, I am I way off on that? Uh, well, no, because I, uh, I came to this recording right after going to the dentist, and I have not showered today. So I can't, I can't yeah. defy Brian. I've, I went to the dentist and I showered. I mean, I put on deodorant, and I showered yesterday. I'm a, I'm a midday showerer because mm -hmm. I shower after I work out. I don't, buy the I don't shower twice, even though that's perfectly nice. So... I, so I, I also I'm almost certain I've been to the doctor without showering, but oh, also, I'm sure I have too. I don't like I don't sit on like a pile of horse manure all day. Like hang on. like I, uh, you know I I I am relatively hygienic, even though I may not have showered. So no, and I there's can't. A, there's a, a difference too. Like if you're sick, like you don't need to show up in a suit like fucking Sam Raimi on set. Like out of <laughs> like to show respect one way or the other. That'd be like, fucking great though. That's like yeah. when people used to dress up on planes. Like you'd yep. wear a suit, and like there's still like a George Will column every yeah, summer. Yeah, I, like, <laughs> I saw a guy wearing flip flops on the plane. That is so ungentlemanly. Yep. There was a time when wearing dungarees on an airplane was not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off. Oh, it's fucking great. All right, last one's from Neil. He noticed that, have you noticed that baseball players, specifically in highlights, they're zoomed in way too much? We never see a home run or diving catch replay that isn't so intensely focused on the player that completely erases all situational context and stakes, thereby actually diminishing the impact. 
when a baseball is absolutely pulverized into Bolivian, I don't just want to see a 200 times zoom on the point of impact. I want to see the man who delivered that ill-fated pitch realize what has happened and then hang his head in dismay in the immediate aftermath. Fix this. Do you have a problem with camera angles on big plays, Roth? I think that for the most part, it's okay. Like, Because there's not as much close-up stuff, but I also feel like you notice it when, like, for instance, it's a big, uh, like, point of, like, our coworker Albert Brunico that, like, if you're showing a cool throw from the outfield, show the throw. Like, I want to see the ball leave the guy's hands and describe a trajectory towards a glove. I don't need to see a close-up of the man throwing, a close-up of the man running, a close-up of the catcher catching the ball. That's like, usually what you get. You usually get a succession of piecemeal yeah. ones. Like, sometimes you'll get the bird's-eye view one. Um like if it's an incredible throw from right field or something like that, but not always. Like usually you get, obviously you get the play, like you get the play at the plate, you get, then you then they cut to the outfielder catching the ball and throwing it, and then they go back to the play at the plate or something like that. So it's yeah. usually, it's usually you get like the elements, but not necessarily the whole. Right, and I feel like the more they cut it and the more, like you want it to see the actual like majesty of the thing, you need to watch it happen sort of as you might, you know, like, and obviously it's not the same thing as like just having a seat in center field or whatever. Like there should be some craft there, but I think the finer you parse it, the harder it is to enjoy. I do like though that there, there do seem to be some new angles in play, which I think is very promising. Like there was one, I think it was his 59th homer that judge hit off uh, the relief pitcher, Luis Perdomo. Okay. And it's, the angle was like slightly further back, a little bit to the left. He hung a slider and Judge hit it 798 feet. And Perdomo reacts the way that like, you know, in like wet, hot American summer where Paul Rudd has to put his tray away and he's like, oh, oh, like just like totally going off. Like Perdomo does so much body acting because he knew he hung the pitch. He heard the sound of it. And like before he even sees where it's going is like, flinging his arms in the air and like stomping around on the mound it's all oh, horse feathers yeah but it rules like that i want to be able to see that like moment of like sort of humanness as opposed to just like yeah like a close-up of the bat hitting the ball like i'm aware that's how home runs happen like, it sounds to, to me like that. what you and neil want is the all 18 film and thankfully yes. if you subscribe to mlb plus you'll get that 72 hours after the game has been played Yo, that's so. i want to be able to see everything i want to see what the third baseman is doing on a home run it's important brandon nix and Chantel holder are our producers <laughs> Nora richie is our executive producer and our theme songs by kirk hamilton you can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. Thanks to Roth and me, and just Roth and me, you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com. Use the promo code DISTRACT. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And subscribe to Defected.com, too, while you're at it. And we will see you next week. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.